Welcome to the Sunday Messages podcast from New Hope Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Our mission is to glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Christ, by belonging together, believing in Christ alone, and blessing our world. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we pray today's message brings you hope and help along the way. Amen. Well, let's encourage our worship band. Excellent job. You hit it. You hit it right on the nail, right on the head with that song. That's exactly what we're going for, especially as we're starting a brand new series. I hope you're ready for this. It's not called the book of Acts for nothing. There's all kinds of action. We're going to be getting into that this week and for the next few weeks together. Hey, let's encourage our, our decoration team as well. Fantastic job. Great group of volunteers. The best thing about this group, not only did they do a fantastic job decorating for this series today, the first day of this series, they were already talking to me about the Christmas decorations. They, they're, they're a special group, very creative, and so God bless them. Well, we're starting a brand new series talking about the book of Acts. I was thinking it through. I just had to take a break and watch a little TV. You ever, you ever need one of those times, just kind of take a break and watch a little TV? I think the greatest invention, I'm on Echo, you guys. I think the greatest invention of, 2000, of the 21st century is uh, streaming TV. Because with streaming TV, you don't need to watch commercials. You can kind of click right through them. Or if you're streaming your favorite show, you can, you can just watch it through. What used to take an hour, you can get through in about 42 minutes. What used to take a half hour only takes about 20 minutes. And the best thing of all with, with this new streaming TV is that you can hit that little button. Maybe you've seen it. It pops up on the very first screen. It says skip recap. You know what that button does? You hit that little button. You can jump past all of the recap, kind of what happened and, and who killed who and, and who married who and who's chasing after whom. And you can jump right into the action. You don't need to watch all that recap stuff. You can jump right into it. Well, here's the deal. With the book of Acts, guys, I'm still on echo. Can you help me with the echo? Uh, and, and here's the best thing about that button. If we, if we hit that button, we jump right to the, with the, the excitement, all the action. In the story of Acts, we could do that. We could jump right to chapter 2. That's where the action begins. But we don't want to miss the recap. We don't want to miss all that God did before leading up to. And just moments before Acts kind of launches, that's all found in chapter 1. So stick with me this week. We're going to dig into chapter 1. It's a bit of recap recap of what came before and what, had, what led right up to Acts. Don't worry, we're jumping right into the big action starting next week. There's 27 more chapters of action, but, but in this recap, we're going to find the backstory. We're going to find the lessons to be learned. We're going to find kind of some foundational beliefs that will carry us through the entire book, and so we don't want to miss it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your phone, you can aim it at that QR code pull up the Bible notes and the Bible text, or it's going to follow on the screen behind me. Acts chapter 1 verse 1, we're going to look at some foundational beliefs, some foundational lessons that we're going to carry us through the whole book. So, so hold on, first one is simply this, we need to understand who the players are in this story, because understanding who the players are, the characters, the, the people that God introduces, they're the ones that we're going to connect with. God wants us to connect with the story, of course, find ourselves in the story, of course. But when we connect to a Bible character, we see how God worked in his life or in her life, knowing all the while that as he did that for them, in them, through them 2,000 years ago, God is willing and able to do the same in and through us today. So, 
as we dig into that, let me read a whole chunk. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 just to kind of give us a picture, and then we'll jump into it from there. Chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into the heavens will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. All right, that's a, that's a long chunk. Thanks for sticking with me. We have a whole second half of the first chapter. We're going to speed through that and jump to the end in just a minute. But let's, let's take this chunk and kind of dig in, find out what, what these uh, foundational lessons are that will carry us through the whole book, specifically, specifically who the characters are. First of all, I want to dig into those. Now, some of these folks are introduced for the first time here in the book of Acts. Some have already been introduced back in the Gospels. Help me real quick. The Gospels, there were Four of them, gospel means good news. It's the good news of Jesus. So they tell the story of Jesus. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Exactly. So those four guys, they tell the story of Jesus. Now we're changing gears with the book of Acts. Let's, let's see who, who comes up. Number one, uh, the Bible says, I wrote this. I wrote this. Who wrote this? Who is the author of this book? Well, it's Luke. Luke, the same guy that wrote, exactly the same guy that wrote the gospel according to Luke. Luke was a doctor. If you jump over to Colossians chapter 4, you'll see where, where Paul, he would often travel with Luke. Paul calls him the physician or the doctor, Luke. Luke was a doctor. He was a good thinker. He was an intelligent guy, well-studied, well-prepared. He was able to ask hard questions. He had not been with Jesus he had not been with Jesus as a disciple. He had not seen much of the stories that we're about to see in the book of Acts, but he was an excellent at interviewing and, and gathering research and, and putting things together. This is what he did. In fact, if you don't mind, let me, let me jump back to his other book, Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this about Luke, just to understand what kind of a guy he was and what he did. Luke chapter 1, verse 1 says this, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, 
since I myself have carefully investigated, researched, interviewed everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Second time we're hearing his name, I'll talk about him in a minute, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So this is, this is Luke Steele. He had a gift for doing that. He had the ability to do that. And so he wrote this book, his former book, of course, like we just said, was uh, the gospel according to Luke. In that book, he focused on the story of Jesus. Again, he wasn't there for much of that story, but he did research and interviews and wrote down stories and talked to a lot of folks. And he thought it was important to write all of that down. This now is kind of part two to part one, the sequel, if you will, to part one, the continuation of the story. And this is what's so interesting about the book of Acts as we dig into it for these next few weeks. This is kind of like a bridge. If the gospels are the story of Jesus, just kind of laying it out there, what he said, what he did, what he taught, who he was, coming in just a little bit are all these famous letters from the apostle Paul, from the theologian Paul, from the missionary Paul. He writes all of these letters to the churches. That's where we have the meat of our theology in those letters. Acts is a bridge between these two worlds. The, the story of Jesus and the in-depth theology, this combines those two. This is what we're going to this is what we're going to discover in the book of Acts. So, so let's keep going. Next, we have another character. His name is Theophilus. That's, that's actually a great name. When I tell you what it means, you're kind of kicking yourself. Why didn't I name my kid Theophilus? Theophilus, what do we know about him? Well, actually, not very much at all. We know his name was Greek. It's a Greek, actually, it's two Greek words, Theo and Philios, God lover. See, that's a great name now. See, I knew you should have named your, your first boy Theophilus. This was this guy. Even though he had a cool name and probably was a follower of God, maybe he even changed his name to identify himself more with God, we still don't know much about him. So the question is... How did this guy that we know nothing about, we only see his name twice, only right here from the writings of Luke, why is he so important that God puts him in the Bible not just once, but twice? How did he rank? How did he show up? How did he make it in there? What's he got going for him? Well, I think we find a clue back there in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke when, when, when Luke is writing him, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. And that's kind of a catchphrase in the, in the Greek world and the now in the Roman world. Someone would be called most excellent or, or noble or honorable if they were a, a prominent leader in the society, a civic leader, maybe even a military leader. This guy, Theophilus, would have been an important guy. Maybe because of his history as a, as, a, as a soldier, maybe because he was a prominent senator, maybe because he was wealthy, he was prominent. So these guys, they would often be patrons of the arts, uh, artists or, or musicians, or in this case, Luke, he was a writer, financially supporting guys like Luke. Now that makes perfect sense because Luke would have been traveling a great deal, interviewing folks. Someone would have had to pay for his lodging, for his food, for his transportation. Someone would have needed to pro provide money for his family back home. This would have been a costly endeavor to write not only the gospel according to Luke, but also the acts of the apostles. This would have taken many, many months. This, this took someone like Theophilus to, to finance that. So what is the Bible teaching us? <clears throat> if you give enough money, you show up in the Bible. <laughs> is that the teaching here? Is that why he shows up? Because he was a big giver? 
Is that, the, is that what we want to walk away with? This guy was so important because of all that he gave to the kingdom? Now, hold on. Before we completely throw that idea out, let's think about it. What if Theophilus was so in love with God that he even changed his name to be God lover? He was pretty convinced that was the way. What if this guy said, listen, these stories that I'm hearing, the stories that I experienced, the, the, the teaching of Jesus that changed my life so dramatically, we've got to get this word out. We've got to get this message out. Other people have to hear this. It will change their lives too. Maybe he didn't have the gift of writing. Maybe he was sick or older and he couldn't travel and interview and, and do what Luke did. He knew Luke had the gifting. He knew Luke had the ability. He knew Luke had the desire to do it. What did Theophilus had? He said, I'm going to share the resources that God's blessed me with to allow you to be free to use the gifting that God has given you. This is a perfect picture of the church. This is what happens when we come together, two guys, two gals, 20, 200, 2,000 folks sharing their gifting, sharing their resources to build the kingdom of God, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about how many millions, I bet billions of people have been blessed by the writings of Luke in the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts in the last 2,000 years because a guy with the gift and a guy with the resources were both moved by the Holy Spirit to work together and this is a result. This is what God is calling us to do. And then there's two more that I don't want us to miss. Jesus. <laughs> Number one, Jesus. Jesus also shows up, and he shows up big. Right there in verse one, in verse two, it says, Jesus began to do and to teach. Jesus began to do and to teach. Anytime we encounter Jesus, we see these two words together, to do and to teach. It's not either or it is both and, to do and to teach. Jesus didn't hide in some religious ivory tower and tweet down pithy religious statements and gather followers that would do his bidding. No, he was very much a hands-on kind of guy. Of course, he was the greatest teacher that ever lived. But beyond teaching, he got his hands dirty. He worked with the people. This is, this is him modeling perfectly for the church. This building was never intended to be some kind of religious theology school where we, where we gather together, lock the doors, cloister ourselves inside and dig into God's word to the exclusion of all that's going on around us. Of course, there will be Bible teaching in our, in our belong groups and here during this time. But beyond that, we are also doing. That's why so many opportunities are presented by our local missions pastor, whether it's working with foster and adoption families or, or coming up with, a, with a, the trunk or treat opportunity to love on the kids in the northwest part of our cities. All of these opportunities are to get our hands dirty because we do and we teach. The Bible says we are not only hearers of the word, but we are also doers of the word. And then last, but certainly not least, we see the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Now, he shows up, and he shows up big all through the book of Acts. In fact, many people believe that was the original title of this book, not the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of the Early Church, but rather the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I, I would tend to agree because he is the main character in all of this. He should show up big, but, 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 but listen how it shows up. I'm not sure I understand. It says right there, verse 1 and 2 again, Jesus 
giving instruction through the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the deal. You and I, in 2,000 years, we've kind of learned a thing or two. We've read the book of Acts. We've read other passages. We understand that alone we can do nothing. Jesus in us, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to walk in the Christian way of walking. We are able to understand God's word. We, we hear truth. We know truth. We are convicted of sin. All the things that the Holy Spirit does, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit working in and through us. We get that. But Jesus... Why does Jesus need the Holy Spirit? I mean, this is post-resurrection, the power that raised him from the dead. So before that, he was already very awesome. The Bible teaches he was 100% human, but also 100% God. Now we are post-resurrection, the power of God to resurrect and prove that he has power over death and hell. This is now... I can't even say new and improved Jesus. He doesn't need improving. He is awesome as always. And his awesomeness is just more apparent now after the resurrection. He was already that awesome. Why is this awesome Jesus depending on the Holy Spirit? Hmm. If Jesus depends on the Holy Spirit, if the instruction from Jesus had power because it came through the Holy Spirit, what are you depending on? In whose power are you depending on? Are you working through your own strength, through your own abilities, through your own gifting, through your own resources, through the, through, through the encouragement of those around you, or, or just pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and toughing it out? Or are you depending on the power of the Holy Spirit? If Jesus himself, awesome Jesus, depended on the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he did, can you imagine how much more you and I need to do the same? Who do we think we are that Jesus needs the power of the Holy Spirit, but we think we don't? God is calling us to do that. Second of all, these guys had one job, one job. Let's see if we can find out what that was. Look at verses 4 and 5. They had one job. Verse 4 says this. So on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he's leaving Remember, he had been with them for, well, he'd been on earth for 33 years, but with the guys for three, three years. After that, he died, was in the grave for three days. God rose him from the dead, and now he's been with him for 40 more days, teaching and encouraging and apparently even sharing a meal together. But now he's about to leave again. So he's leaving a list of kind of a to-do list things they need, to, they need to take care of in his absence. I'm going away. This is what you need to do. Uh, this last week, uh, Chanel and I, we were on vacation ourselves. And so uh, my staff and, and the guys I work with and, 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 and elders and, and others that serve here at church, they got emails from me last week, <laughs> asked them to take care of this and this. And I, I sent out some pretty extensive lists and pretty extensive emails, kind of making sure things kind of ran smoothly in my absence. Jesus does the same thing, but his list wasn't nearly as long as my list. His list had one thing on it. He said, okay, guys, here's my list. Here's what I need you to do. Stay put. Why? I mean, 
Before, at the end of Matthew, we heard Jesus saying, I want you to go. As you go, make disciples of the whole world. And now Jesus is saying, stay, stop, right where you are, wait. Why would he say that? Well, first of all, it says it right there. It was worth waiting for. Jesus calls it the promise of the Father. This is a, a covenant or a gift of the Father. Which Father? The Father in heaven, the God of the universe. This God has handpicked a prize, a present, a gift, a promise just for you, and he is going to hand deliver this gift into your hands. You better believe I'm waiting around for that one. That one's going to be good. That's like the best gift ever. Second of all, Jesus says, the one that I've already told you about. Well, you might remember back in John chapter 16, there's a, a whole chapter where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and, and how he's going away, the Holy Spirit's coming. And at one point he says, but listen, guys, it's actually better for you that I go away because when I go, the Holy Spirit will come in you. And the guys are hitting themselves. They're like, better? Are you kidding me? How could that be better? What could be better than, than God right next to me? You know the answer, don't you? God inside you. And Jesus had been telling them this ever since the gospel of John. And then thirdly, he also, he, he said, this is going to be a game changer. He said, remember that baptism that we all went through? He's not throwing the baptism of John under the bus. Well, John, he only baptized with water, but now this is the real thing. No, he wasn't saying that at all. In fact, if he were, he'd, he'd be throwing himself under the bus because Jesus allowed himself to be baptized by John. There's nothing wrong or bad or less important to that baptism. In fact, we're going to be celebrating one in just a few days. What he's saying is what's coming is going to change everything. This baptism for us is a really big deal. At our church, we celebrate what's called um, believer's baptism. What that means is that each person that, that is baptized, they are publicly demonstrating for the whole church and, and really anyone else that comes. And we often take pictures and send those pictures to family members and others so that other folks know about a personal intimate decision we've made in our heart. Each one is baptized based on that decision, their own belief, not on mommy's belief or on grandma's belief or on a godparent's belief. We don't baptize and then allow folks to grow into that belief. Baptism always follows belief. And then secondly, we, we celebrate what we call a baptism by immersion. That word baptize in the Bible every single time you read it. Every single time comes from the Greek word bautizo. Bautizo would be if you uh, took some cloth and you, you wanted to color this cloth a different color. The, the Greek word would be bautizo. You would dunk it into the, the dye and it would come out that color all the way under. Not sprinkle, not, not splash, not hose down, but dunk under. That's why we do it that same way. This is the biblical picture of baptism. And this is what Jesus is saying. But here, think about those folks. Many of you have been here for our, our baptism. We have one in just a couple days. We'll do it right outside between the first and second service. We all kind of go out there and we, we encourage the folks. We cheer for the folks. We applaud them, we pray for them, and then we, we send them out as, as witnesses. That's their first public step of faith. And following that, they'll, they'll be a witness to their friends and to their family, to their neighborhood, wherever they work. That's, that's kind of the picture of it. But when those folks come out of the water, how wet are they? 
I mean, it, it, yeah, you're pretty wet, aren't you, Jimmy? If, if you're doing immersion baptism, like we practice here, you're pretty wet. You're all the way wet. There's nothing dry. You are immersed. You are drenched. Everything about you has been changed by that water. This is a picture Jesus is giving us of that baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, of course, there was Holy Spirit uh, mentioned. It, it, it hovered. It it, it came on, it empowered, that happened in the Old Testament. But here, beginning with this, are we drenched by the Holy Spirit, changing every aspect of our life? This is what God is calling us to do. Thirdly, God is calling us to ask the right questions. There's going to be all kinds of questions in the book of Acts. We want to make sure we're asking the right ones. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to him, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his authority. What's going on here? This question kind of comes out of the blue. What are they talking about? Restore the kingdom. Which kingdom and and why does it need restoring? Come on, guys, focus. Jesus talking about baptism and power and and the Holy Spirit. What is this? What does this talk about a, a kingdom and restoring it? Where did that come from? Actually, it's not as crazy of a question as you may think. Here's the deal. These guys were Jews who had become Christians. Their history, their upbringing, everything they had been taught pointed to the coming one day of the Messiah. As they were invited or as they listened in those very first sermons from Jesus, they were thinking already in their heart, could this be, maybe it is, I'm listening in to find out if... This one could be the Messiah. Before long, they were fully convinced they were all in. Jesus is the Messiah. By the end of his life, they were proclaiming that loudly and and widely and publicly. Come and see the Messiah, the called one, the coming one. Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. He had come. They were waiting for that. They were living under Roman oppression. Uh, the, the, the Romans were calling them. And they knew from the stories of their childhood that when the Messiah comes, he would, number one, he would restore the kingdom. Number two, he would set the captives free. And number three, he would assume the throne to be the king. They knew that was coming. You combine all of that teaching with what they were seeing in the life of Jesus and the fact that he had just risen from the dead, proving he has power over death itself. They put one and one together and said, this must be the Messiah. Jesus is the real deal. What does the Messiah do? He restores the kingdom. Fair question. How does Jesus respond? Nope. (laughs) that's not for you to know. You are not to know the day or the time. Jesus is not (coughs) scolding them. He's not... He's not calling them out. He's not embarrassing them. He's not, he's not saying, listen, the answer to that is above your pay grade. He's not getting in their face with his finger saying, you can't handle this. You can't handle the truth. What Jesus is saying with this statement is simply this. Your next step is not more information. Your next step is not an answer to your questions. 
Your next step is not to have God lay out his plan, run it past you. If you approve, then you can move on. Your next step is something much deeper, much more powerful than that. Here's the problem, folks. We today, 2,000 years later, we're in the same boat as these disciples. We think God owes us an explanation. We believe God needs to not only lay out his plan, but we want it laid out in <clears throat> triplicate and in, in, in four color, uh, demonstrating exactly where he's going, when he's going to go there. Once we think it through and plan it through and we give him our approval, then we may take that first step of faith. There is no faith needed in that at all. This is not at all what God is calling us to do. God is not waiting <clears throat> God does not want us to wait until he spells it out, finishes the roadmap, even before we take that step. Jesus says, no, it is not for you to know. Your next step is not information or clarity or a clear path or plan. It is power. Now, what does power look like? Look at verse 8, <clears throat> the power principle. This is what Jesus is saying we need. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let me say that one more time. You will receive power. Power, the Greek word is dunamis, the word we get the word dynamite, exponentially more powerful than anything we could cook up, dream up, create ourselves. You will receive power, and then he says, and you will be my witnesses. Now, here's the interesting thing about those two statements. They're not commands. I dug into the grammar. These are not commands. God is not saying, and you will receive my power. And once you receive it, you will get out there and you will be my witnesses, my testifiers, my, my, my truth tellers. He is not saying that at all. They're both in the indicative. What does that mean? He's merely stating facts. This is what God's saying. This is what Jesus is saying. He said, listen, in a few, get, in a few days, guys, here's what's going to happen. You're about to receive this power, this dynamite, not only coming over you or, or empowering you for a special thing, as we saw in the Old Testament, this dynamite power is going to indwell you. It's going to happen. And after that happens, you will naturally on the basis of the fact that you just received that dynamite power, you will begin to walk out and you will be my witnesses, my truth tellers, my storytellers, giving testimony to that which you've experienced here. This is what God is saying to us. This is what God is calling us to. But now, wait a minute. If you're looking around the church, like I am, thank you, my brother. If you're, thank you. If you're looking around the church today, 2,000 years later, like I am, you may be asking yourself, where are all the truth-tellers? Where's all the witnesses? Where are all the folks that, that should have been receiving this power now going out and, and telling their story, telling the story of God, giving testimony to what God has done in their life? Well, these are two indicative statements, factual statements, just simply stating facts. If the second is not happening, then maybe <clears throat> the first never happened. God is calling us to make sure we have first, number one, and 
number two, that the power is indwelling us. And when that happens, naturally we will go out and the power will flow through us and we'll begin testifying. There is so little testifying, so little witness giving, so little conspicuous Christian faith being lived out in our world, in our churches today, because we have never received that power. He says, you will be my witnesses. Sorry. Thank you, Dave. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Again, this isn't God saying, okay, now that you receive the power, now get out there and go. Some of y'all go to Jerusalem. The rest of y'all go over to Samaria, Judea. And, and a couple of y'all go ahead and head out to the ends of the earth. This is not a command. He is simply stating a fact that when this power comes over you, when this power indwells you, you will naturally begin. Some of y'all will feel more comfortable closer to home. Jerusalem was closer to home. That's where they were at this moment. Some of y'all are just going to stay kind of close to where you're from. As you are going, be a witness. Others of you, you're, you're kind of branching out. You might make it all the way up to the northwest of Cape Coral, talking to folks you've never talked to before, sharing with people you have no relationship with yet. You're telling your story. You're giving testimony, your truth, telling to others that don't know the truth yet. And then a few of you, a few of you are going to get on the airplane and you fly all the way to Panama, fly all the way to Oman, fly all the way to China to just tell the story. This is what God is calling us. You say you are a believer. We say that we are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Then just open your mouth. Give testimony. Tell the truth, that which you have seen, that which you experienced, that is all you say and nothing more and God will do the rest. Next, we need to understand another truth. How are we going to figure out what God's will is for our life? Even that tough question is talked about here. All right, jump all the way to the end of chapter one. Verse 23, 24, 25, and 26. These first 11 verses have been kind of the backstory. Everything has happened up to this point. Now we've had, uh, after that, then, then Peter kind of stands up. There's about 120 of them in the room at this point. Think about that. After the, the ministry of Jesus, he's returned to his father. There's about 120 believers left in the room. 120 folks. There's over a billion believers in our world today. It started with one, and then 12, and then 120. These 120 are there, and surprise, surprise, Peter stands up and starts talking. No one's surprised by that, because that's Peter, that's what he does. He says, listen, guys, we got to fix something. You remember Judas? Yeah, we remember Judas. He's gone. That leaves us with 11 disciples, 11 apostles. That's not right. It's always been 12. 12 is that number of completion. We need 12. I, I suggest we, 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 we grab one more guy, so we have this perfect number, 12, and we have 12 apostles again. They debate it. They talk about it. He lays out some scripture from the Old Testament. They agree to it. They pick two guys, Joseph and Matthias. Pick up the story, verse 23. It says this. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also named as Justice and Matthias. They, then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas, Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they, hmm, my Bible says, then they cast lots. Is that what y'all have? 
That's weird. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so that he was added to the 11 apostles. Wait a minute, that, that, that can't be right. Let's go through the story one more time. There was a great need. They needed one more guy to have that number 12. Judas went, well, you know where he went, so they needed one more. They came up with two great guys, Joseph and Matthias. One of them is going to be the guy. Now it's time to choose. They prayed, excellent. They prayed, oh God, you know everything. You know who it should be. So then God said, this one? No, that wasn't it. So they prayed, oh God, you know everything. You know who it should be. So they interviewed both of the men and they chose the best candidate. No, not even that. Oh, I don't, maybe they were Baptists. So they prayed real hard and they said, God, you know everything. Tell us which one it is. And they took a vote. Two-thirds majority of the quorum that was present according to Robert's rules of order. That's what they did. Nope, none of those things. The Bible says this, they cast lots through dice. They cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. Are you kidding me? How did this story wind up in the Bible? This can't be right. How can we in the church, in the Bible, be reading about a game of chance to pick one of the most important leaders in the early church movement? That can't be right. Who does that? Hold on. Admittedly, this is pretty crazy. I don't know that I would have been on board with this suggestion to cast lots to pick Matthias over Joseph. But is it any worse? Is it any crazier? Is it any more ungodly than the way many of us make our decisions today? I mean, think about it. How do we know what our next step is? Oh, we Google it, we do our internet research. We, we go shopping for counsel and advice from others. You know what that looks like. You keep shopping for the counsel that says what you've already wanted to hear even before you ask the question. Maybe you, you've reached out to uh, social media influencers or, or even worse, uh, uh, prosperity preachers. Or worst of all, you have depended on your own emotions. Are any of those ways any worse, any less godly than what these guys did back with the rolling of the dice to choose the next leader? In their defense, that's the option they had. The Holy Spirit had not yet come to fill them. That was to come just a short time later. After that time, you and I now have the Holy Spirit. That's even more reason for us to not grab back at this long list of possibilities for discovering our next step, Googling, researching, social media influence, advice grabbing from wherever we can find what tickles our ears. We have the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. He gives clarity and he gives truth. And then finally, there's one last one left. Verse 10 and 11, quit staring off into space. There is work to be done. Look at verse 10, it says this. So they were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white, who are they? Angels, good. Two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So what's happening here? Jesus had been with them, well, for three years 
in the grave for three days, rose from the grave, and then he was with them for 40 days. During that time, he, he preached some more, he taught some more, he shared meals together, he encouraged them, he left this one-point list of what they were to do next. All of that happened, and then he starts floating up into the sky. Well, surprise, surprise, all the guys that were with him, they're standing there dumbfounded, staring at Jesus. I don't blame them. They've never seen anything like this before. I mean, they've seen some incredible miracles of Jesus for sure, but this they've never seen. I don't, they haven't had TV or movies. Nothing like this has ever happened. They're staring at something they've never seen. I get it. Not just that, they're staring at the very focus of their entire lives. Everything they've been doing up to this point for the last three years has been focused on Jesus. He has been their leader. He has been their teacher. He has been their, the, the giver of the way. He, everything they've depended on, they've depended on him. It's no wonder they're staring at them. Without him, at best, they just muddle along. You remember some of the stories. At one point, they tried to cast out some demons. They couldn't do it. They failed miserably. Jesus had to come in and help them. Another time, they were in the boat. They said, Jesus, we're fishermen. We know how to steer a boat. Take a nap. Lay down. Get some rest. We'll take care of this. What happened? A storm comes up, and they're screaming bloody murder. Save us. Save us. We're going to die. Jesus had to get up from his nap, say two words, be still, and the storm was stilled. And then, and then finally, Jesus, they, they, they uh, were walking down the road one time, and Jesus hears a little bit of arguing behind him. He turns around, what's going on? The guys are arguing over who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. These guys depended on Jesus for everything. And they're staring at him, being taken away from them. I get it. The focus of who they were. And then these two guys show up, these men in white, of course, they're angels. We see this over and over again in the New Testament, especially these men in white show up and they, they ask an excellent question. Men in white are angels. Angels in Greek is angelos. Angelos means messenger. They've come with a message from God. What is that message? Stop staring off into space. There's work to be done. This is a message they're bringing these guys. But these guys weren't just staring off into space. They weren't doing nothing. They were doing something. You can't blame the guys. Their focus was on Jesus. Their, their intent, their eyes, their purpose, their, their direction was on Jesus. Can that be bad? What could be better than, than putting all of your focus on the risen son of God? Obeying the risen son of God. They had at least three commands from God, Jesus, they could have followed. Number one, he said uh, at the end of Matthew, I want you to go to the ends of the earth making disciples. Secondly, right here in this story, he said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem. They're just a little bit outside and I want you to wait there. And then thirdly, he said, I want you to wait for the promise of the father. At least these three they had, there may have been others, but here's the deal of these three not one of them included the idea of staring off into space and dreaming of the good old days. Not one of these three commands, and there may have been others, included staring off into space and dreaming of the sweet by and by that is to come. Not one of these included that. This is where I believe so many of us here in the church today struggle. We are catatonic, we are motionless, we are standing around, we are absent from the culture outside, we have become irrelevant and apathetic, even immovable. Why? Because we're standing around dreaming 
of the good old days of the church. Because we are standing around dreaming of the sweet by and by one day when we can check out of this place. And God's message for you and for me and New Hope Church is this. Stop standing around staring off into space. Brothers and sisters, there's work to be done. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the book of Acts. God, we know the, the real action is still to come. The stories, the movement, the incredible miracles, not only the birth, but the growth, the dramatic, rapid growth of your church is all to come. God, that same rapid growth that we are going to see in these next 27 chapters, God, I pray that you would allow us to see that today in our world, in our city, in our lives. God, please help us to take these lessons, these foundational truths of the book that we're learning in chapter one today and apply them over and over and over again as we walk through the rest of this book. We thank you, Jesus, and we love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. You can find more free resources, learn about our church, and partner with us financially when you visit us online at newhopecapecoral.com. Also, if you have a question or a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on the contact page, once again, at newhopecapecoral.com. Finally, if this message was a blessing to you, would you take a moment to share that blessing with others? You can do that by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and by leaving a review to share your story with others. Thanks again for tuning in and for helping us share the hope of Jesus with the world he loves. We'll see you next time.